appreciate Brent asking me to, to play and uh, try to give my Lord and Savior honor and glory when I do. And I hope this turns out right. beautiful song. You know, many of us know that song very well. One of my grandfathers had that as his uh, favorite song. And I uh, hope that's all of our prayer today. 
is that our utmost desire is to be near to the Lord. And uh, yes, Brother Kenny, I do get nervous when I get up here. And um, in a sense, I don't ever want to lose that. Not just because of the number of people gathered, um, but because of the seriousness of what you do when you get up here and you try to honor the Lord, whether it be in a song or whether it be to preach the Word. It's a, it's a very serious matter. And I certainly desire your prayers this morning. want to be where the Lord would have me to be and to bring out the, the thoughts that He desires to be heard today. For us to be closer to the Lord and, and for those who don't know Christ to be drawn to the Lord. That's pretty much the simple goal of every time we stand to speak the Word of God. Uh, that doesn't change. We've been spending time here in the book of Malachi, and Lord willing, we'll be into chapter 3 quite a bit today. As we've seen in the book of Malachi, there are six different discourses. Someone told me they didn't know that word, uh, what that meant. Discussions, subjects, sections, if you will, going on here in Malachi, and within each of these, there is a pattern that we've seen over and over, that God brings a charge, there's something wrong, the people don't understand it, so they question, the Lord then responds to that, and then we learn something foundational, something significant from God in each of these different discourses. So far, we've covered three of these, we've actually had four sermons on Malachi, Um, On a Sunday night, the first week we started, we did an overview of all of Malachi, but going back to the first Sunday morning, uh, the first discourse was titled, I Have Loved You. And the point was, despite the blindness of the people, there was evidence of God's love right in front of them. And the foundation in that passage is God wanted his name to be made great beyond the borders of Israel. He had a bigger picture in mind. The second time we preached on this on January 14th, message was was titled, I'm a Great King. And what we saw was that the people not only questioned God's love, but their worship reflected that. They were weak in their worship. And the Lord was trying to convey to these people that, look, I am a great king and my name should be held in esteem and the way you worship should reflect who I am. My name should be great from the east to the west, incense offered in every place, pure offerings. The third message last Sunday, uh, the third discourse, was about a godly seed. And we saw that not only were, did they have problems in what they thought about God, reflected in weak worship, but the way they were treating each other was not right. God's desire was to perpetuate a godly seed, to go beyond their generation. Remember, this is about going beyond geography, beyond the borders of Israel, and beyond just their generation. Moving forward in geography and in time. God is counting and calling upon His people in each and every age to raise up another godly generation. And the way that we choose our marriage partners, the way we treat our marriage partners, the way we treat one another is creating a culture, is creating a, a dish, if you will, in which we're trying to raise up this next generation. And so the Lord's desire was for a godly seed. So as we've gone through the first three, and we're going to start here with number four, Lord willing, 
We've climbed the hill and we're going to come back down and what we're going to see is kind of a, a mirror image and reflection because we're going to see as we're going to start here that there were some more problems among the people the Lord is going to address. And then in the fifth one we'll see that there's more problems with their worship. And we'll come down to the sixth one and we'll see that there's some more issues they had in their heart with God. So there's kind of this mirror image, if you will, between one and three and four through six. There's a little bit of retread, so we're building on these things that we've been hearing. And so let's read this passage together this morning. And the way I'm breaking this up, it's starting in chapter 2, verse 17, and going through chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 6. And I just want to point out that chapter and verse divisions in your Bible are not inspired. They're helpful. I thank God for them, but they are not inspired. Neither are the little headings people write in above chapters and above different sections and things. Those are not inspired either. So let's start here in chapter 2, verse 17, and let's read together. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, Wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness." Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. And I will come near to you in judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And let's pray together before we go further. Our merciful and gracious God, as we come before you this morning, Lord, your presence is the one that matters most in this place. Lord, what you would have to say to us today, Lord, needs to be heard, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, for who can hear but you open our ears, Lord, who can see but, Lord, that you would wipe our eyes to to be able to see and perceive, Lord. You are an invisible God, and, Lord, all we can know of you is only what you choose to reveal to us, Lord, only what you would choose to show us, Lord, and so we lean completely upon you today. Lord, there is no wisdom of words that can convince anyone of anything that must be revealed by the power of your word and of your spirit. 
And so, Lord, we pray and ask today for your great help and strength, Lord, that your word would go forth, Lord, that, would, that, that sharp two-edged sword, Lord, would go forth and cut our hearts, each of us, Lord, in this room, the saved and the lost, as you would, and draw us unto you, Lord. Help us to appreciate you, Lord. Help us to see and believe and know that you are a good and unchanging God. Lord, we worship you today. Lord, you are a great king. You are worthy of our hearts. You're worthy of our attention, Lord. You're worthy of the very best that we can give, Lord. So help us today to bring an offering pleasing to you. Help us as we stand, Lord. Thank you for all the prayers of the people, Lord. All who who come and, and gather and pray, Lord, that our time together would be well spent. Lord, that would be pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would hear the cries today. And answer, Lord, and be with us in a great and mighty way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall, the people of Israel had expectations of God. And as you recall, expectations can get us in trouble, right? Things that we expect God to do, things that we expect to be done a certain way at a certain time, when we read a passage of Scripture... We hear something that's preached and we build up in our own minds what we think it's going to be like. And so we set those expectations. And when God doesn't meet those expectations, it can cause problems in our heart and in our mind. And that's exactly what's going on here uh, on the people of Malachi's day as he's preaching to them. They were looking around at the situation. Remember, Remember, they had come back from captivity in Babylon. They had rebuilt the temple. They had rebuilt the walls. Uh, When the temple was built, the prophet Haggai said, look, the glory of this second temple is going to be even greater than the first. Even though it's smaller, it's going to have a greater glory to it. There were promises about people coming back to Israel. There were promises about their prosperity. And they weren't seeing all that happen. In fact, they were looking around at many of their neighbors and they were seeing all these other nations around them under the rule of Persia and saying... They seem better off than we are. And they're idolaters. And they're doing evil things. Where are you, God? And we see the Lord's charge here to the people. The Lord's charge is in the beginning of verse 17 at the end of chapter 2. The Lord says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied, you have made me tired with your complaints, God is saying. Now, let's understand, God doesn't get tired like we think of getting tired. In fact, the Bible is very clear. Isaiah said, hast not thou heard, hast thou not known that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, listen, he fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. So Isaiah says, look, he never gets tired. He doesn't need to go to sleep. So what does the Lord mean when he says, I am weary with your words? He is saying, I am getting frustrated with the ignorant complaints that you all are levying against me. God is expressing frustration with continual complaints about him. And the Lord is about to show them, you don't know what you are talking about. So the people, in response to the charge, the Lord sees the hearts, and here is their question. Yet you say, 
wherein have we wearied him? The Lord explains. Because they don't say, well, how have we frustrated you? And the Lord is saying, when you say, first, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? Two different attitudes, two different Phrases or things that were being kind of passed among the people, two things they were saying were really frustrating God. And the first one is like, is this. They had this attitude as they were looking around at all of their neighbors, all the people who were worshiping idols. Remember, they were actually starting to intermarry with them and do things that they shouldn't do and be drawn away from God. These people who were doing uh, evil practices and there was evil even amongst the people. They, must, they were looking at this and saying, well, God must like people who do evil. God must be okay with that because they seem to be doing better than me. They thought that evil must not be that bad because evildoers seem to be doing just fine. You know, it's not uncommon for God's people at times to have questions. It's not uncommon for God's people to see what appears in the moment to be inequity and question in our hearts. You know, Lord, why is it that this person doing the wrong thing seems to be prospering while somebody who's trying to do the right thing isn't so much? Psalm 73 is about that. Asaph wrote that psalm, and he talked about having that question in his heart. But the, thing, the difference was that Asaph, as he was pondering this, he wasn't trying to propagate it. He wasn't trying to go out and say it. It was something he was struggling with in himself. Maybe he was talking to some godly friends about wrestling through this. And the Lord revealed to him, to Asaph, as he was praying and wrestling through this, he showed Asaph what the end of the wicked was. And Asaph realized God is going to take care of all this. These people are not acting like Asaph and just having some internal questions and doubts and struggles. They have an attitude that is pervasive among the people that God must not really care about bad. The second thing that they were saying that Malachi notes, uh, notes here in this passage is where is the God of judgment? When is God going to do something? It's about time. Nothing is happening. All this evil is going on around us. When will God move? God, don't you even care? You know, you put yourself in a very dangerous position when you presume to be able to stand in judgment over God and tell God He's not doing a good job. Which is what the people of Israel were doing. You see this pride in the heart that is elevating them to a position where they're looking at God and saying, God, it's about time and you've not acted. So we see what's going on in their hearts and you can see the Lord's response to this is, I'm getting very frustrated with your ignorance about when I'm going to come and do something about what's really going on. So the Lord responds to them with, I will come. I will come to you. And let me explain this because this stretches down from chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, down through verse 5. And this is the way it's kind of structured. 
The Lord says, look, I'm going to come. And here's how it's going to work. It's going to happen in two parts. First, I will send my messenger. Second, I will come. And when I come, there's two parts to this. Number one, part A, I'm going to clean house. And then part B, I'm going to judge sin. Okay? So that's the way this is laid out here in Malachi chapter 3 in these first five verses. That's the general structure. And I want us to look at the Lord's response. Because what we're going to find is the Lord's delay was not due to any deficiency on God's part. It was due to the sin in the people. That was what was causing the delay. They didn't realize what was going on with them. And so the Lord says, as he is telling them, okay, here's how I'm going to come. Here's how I'm going to do it. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, behold, pay attention. Everybody listen up. I am going to send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. I'm going to first send my messenger and he will get the way ready for me to come. This right here is a little bit of a slap in the face to the people, if you understand the significance of it, right? Because you think about, you know, like our president. Our president doesn't just go someplace when he wants to, right? What happens? There's an advance team, right? He says, I want to go out and get ice cream at this place. And there are people that go ahead of the president to go and make sure everything is okay, everything is secure, the people know how to behave, that everything is going to be okay for the president to come. And once they make sure it's all ready and fix any problems, then the president comes in. Right? So you've got this advance team. And the Lord is saying here, I'm going to send an advance team, a messenger. He's going to prepare the way before me. What does that imply? Things aren't right. Things aren't right. I'm going to have to send somebody to get things ready for me to even come because things are not the way they should be among the people. And Jesus quotes this passage. Jesus quotes this passage in the Gospel of Matthew speaking of John the Baptist. Right? This is but John the Baptist we're talking about. In fact, he'll show up again later in Malachi. This is exactly about John the Baptist. Jesus quotes these words. Jesus says, For this is he, of John the Baptist, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So the Lord is telling them through Malachi, I'm going to send somebody ahead of me to get the way ready. Well, what did John do? He came and he preached a message of repentance to the people, didn't he? John came and pre preached a message of repentance to the people to prepare the people's hearts to hear the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ would bring, to get them ready for the Messiah. Well, part two, the Lord says, then I will come. This is verse, uh, verse 1 here. After the messenger comes, it goes on and says, And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. One of the big concerns of this people 
was about the glory of their temple. Remember when Solomon built the first temple, what happened when they dedicated it? The glory, the Shekinah glory of the Lord came down upon that place and it filled the temple with such a great and mighty presence of the Lord. They couldn't minister. You know, it was clear to everybody that God's presence was upon that place. This great, profound, perceivable glory of God. Right? That didn't happen when the second temple was built. When they dedicated it, when they finished it up, it didn't happen again. And so the people were like, what gives? I mean, we we, we rebuilt it. I mean, back in Solomon's day, this happened. And that's when Haggai prophesied and said, look, the glory of this second temple will be even greater. It'll be even greater than the first. Well, even in Malachi's day, a hundred years later, nothing had happened. And the Lord says, look, the Lord shall suddenly come to His temple. It will happen. You're not going to be expecting it, but the Lord will come to His temple. And indeed, as, as John is writing his gospel, that beautiful first chapter of John where he's explaining, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As he's explaining all those things and the significance of the incarnation of Christ, John makes this statement. The Word was made flesh. And He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. So John is saying that in Christ is the full glory of God. And what was it that happened when that infant Jesus, after He was born, was brought to the temple to be circumcised according to the law of Moses, there were Simeon and Anna there who were waiting, right? They were waiting for the Lord's glory to be manifest in the temple and the Holy Spirit allowed them to see. And as Simeon is blessing this child and blessing the parents, he says, he says, this child is a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. He sees it. He is perceiving that here is an even greater glory than the Shekinah glory of God coming down on Solomon's temple. The Lord has come into His temple. And indeed, every time that Jesus graced the doors of that place and gathered with those people there, whether it was to overturn the tables, or whether it was when He was 12 years old to go and to to hear the teaching and then to actually teach others, whatever time it was that He was there, my friends, a greater glory of God was present in that place than even when Solomon dedicated the first temple. A greater glory. You see, what Malachi says here is exactly what's going to happen. I will come. I will come to my temple. I will keep that promise. And he says something here. He says in this passage, he says, The Lord whom you seek, y'all are waiting for this. Y'all are waiting for this. You want this. The Lord whom you seek, I'm going to come. He says, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. That's speaking again of Christ, the messenger of the new covenant. He said, you're delighting and you're longing for this. You're really wanting it. I'm going to come. Do you know what that means when I come? You ever found yourself really looking forward to something? And you think, man, I can't wait for this to happen. It's going to be awesome. 
That's exactly what Malachi is setting up for this people here. What he's wanting them to see. You think you want this. You think you want him to come. Okay, the Lord says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come suddenly. I know you seek it. I know you delight in it. But, but, there's a, a wait what? Kind of just built into this passage right here. Because what we're going to see in verse 2, as the Lord is describing him coming, this is the first thing he's going to do. This is going to be his priority. I'm going to come, and the first thing I'm going to do is clean house. Verse 2 starts with a but, right? It's showing us a contrast. You think you want this, but here's the question. Who is going to be able to stand the day of His coming? Who will stand when He appears? Because He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's or a launderer's soap. And that's referring to lye that was used to cleanse clothing at that time. He, the Lord, shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Who's that? The priests. He'll purify the priests, purge them as gold and silver so they can make a good offering. Then will the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant or good like it was when it first started. The Lord is going to come and there's going to be a purging that's going to happen. He's going to sit like a refiner or like a launderer using lye to cleanse dirty clothes. He's got this work that he's going to be doing. This is going to be his first priority and that is not what the people expected especially the religious elite now you see a refiner doesn't destroy the silver he doesn't destroy the gold but he melts it and he pulls out all the dross all the impurities and all the imperfections and he's skimming that off the top and and for the gold or the silver that's a painful process it's a purifying process. And for the laundry back in that day when they would wash it and take the, the lye, which is a very you know, caustic thing, and it's going on it and they're rubbing this on it and then they're actually beating, physically beating the clothes to clean them you know, and scrubbing them and doing all of those things. That was not a pleasant process for the clothes. It was not meant to destroy them, but it was meant to get out all of the impurities. And God's goal, remember his goal, and he's being consistent, right? His goal was a what? A pure offering. A pure, I want a pure offering. I want it to be done right. I want it to be real from the heart, in spirit and in truth, sincere. That's what he's always been looking for. Remember he said he wanted pure incense to be offered everywhere, not just at Jerusalem. And so the Lord was saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to do a purifying work in ministry. Well, what did Jesus do when he came? He provided a perfect example, first of all. What's God like? As Jesus told the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen him. They had a perfect example of holiness. He came and he taught them the true intent of the law. Not what their religious leaders had twisted it to be, but what it was really about. And he wasn't afraid to call out sin. 
even among the religious elite. He came to call sinners to repentance, he said. And he came to make the perfect sacrifice that can purge the soul of sin. And all who would turn and repent and believe in him may pass through that purifying blood of Christ and have your sins washed from you. As John the Baptist said of Jesus, this is what John the Baptist, the messenger, said. He said, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I comes, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. There is a work that Christ that Christ would be doing, John is explaining, that is even more purifying than anything that I'm doing. Truly more purifying. You see, Jesus Christ fits the bill about coming to clean house, and that remains his concern today. He also goes on and says, in addition to that, he's going to judge sin. Because they were so concerned about what everybody else was doing, right? All these other nations, they're doing this, or these people are doing that, and you're not doing anything about it. Jesus says, then I will judge sin. I'll deal with the sorcerers. I'll deal with the adulterers. I'll deal with the false swearers, those who are oppressing people, the widow and the fatherless, the ones who are turning aside from the foreigners and their rights, the ones who don't fear me. The Lord says, I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to mete out judgment. And I believe this is likely an Old Testament incident of what's called telescoping, where the Old Testament prophet from that vantage point sees the coming of Christ, and they see the first coming and the second coming. And they all kind of have it mixed in together because they don't understand the separations between these things. And indeed, my friends, the Lord is going to come at some point in judgment. He's talked about it. He's going to come and render justice and judgment. He's going to do all of these things that have been promised. And we await that day. He will judge evil. He will take out the trash, if you will. But it's going to be after he purifies his people. After he purifies his people. That would be his priority. And he says this as the foundation And to me, this is such a beautiful passage, and it's worth a lot more than I can give you this morning. But he says this beautiful truth. He says, for I am the Lord, because all of this I'm going to do, because I am the Lord, and I change not. I do not change. I am unchanging. Therefore, ye, the sons of Jacob, are not consumed. This is is a... Deeply significant passage with so many different applications for us that tie into so many important things for us. But in a sense, the Lord is is explaining in His frustration with their complaints, why haven't I just wiped you out? The Lord says, I am frustrated. Well, why not just get rid of them all? And His answer is, the reason that you are still here and I haven't got rid of all of you, is because I'm an unchanging God. I'm an unchanging God. In fact, he says it elsewhere. I'm going to read this to you here. It's in Psalm 89. It's so beautiful. And I'm putting it in the ESV because I I know some of you key in on this phrase, steadfast love, which you find here. It's so significant. 
It says, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, the Lord speaking of his people, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. What is so significant is the Lord is saying, you all are complaining with me and saying I'm unjust, that I call evil good, that I'm okay with it. And the Lord is explaining the very reason you guys are still standing right now is because I hate evil. It's because I hate lying and I will not lie and I've made promises. It's because I am just and I'm not going to change what I've said, what I've committed to you. You're calling me unjust. You're calling me faithless. That's the whole reason you're still here is because I am just. I am true. I am faithful. He's explaining all that. You see, he is frustrated by these complaints that are levied against him that are just ignorant because it's the very mercy of God that was giving them breath to complain against him. The very mercy and kindness of God giving them breath, giving them voice with which they use to complain against God. I don't change. I don't change and therefore... You're not consumed. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, just to review, and we talked about it in Brother Donald's Sunday school class today. Remember, we're in a new covenant. The Lord came and He was the messenger of a new covenant. In His blood, for those who've been saved by grace, He has washed us, He has cleansed us. We are in covenant with Him by grace, through faith, not of our works, So this is different than the Old Testament, Old Covenant, right? But also, those of us who are saved, we're priests. We have access to God. We don't have to go through anybody else. We go right to the high priest, Jesus Christ. We don't have to have somebody else pray in our stead. We can go right to the throne. And so we are priests. And we've been called to do what? To make offerings to the Lord. To submit our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. That would be pleasing to Him. We've been called into this priesthood. So remember that. As we look at these things, that's who we are. The Lord can take these truths and He can apply it to us. So what about the charge? What about the charge? Is it possible for us as New Testament Christians to weary the Lord with our words? Is this possible? Is that just an Old Testament thing? Consider this passage here in Ephesians. It says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. My friends, God can still, His Spirit can still become frustrated with us when corrupt communication comes out of our mouths, things that are just not right, things that are ignorant of the truths of God, and it grieves Him. And it grieves Him when our mouths pour forth things that are not true, that levy charges against Him or others that just are not right. My friend, the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you grieves over those things. There is a frustration in in the Godhead when we behave that way. 
Can we fall into that place of complaining? Can we fall into that place of, of questioning God in, a, in an ungodly way? And I do not want in any way to discourage God's people from asking hard questions and wrestling through issues in a godly way. But can we also do it in an ungodly way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can we be afflicted with discontent about the situation in our life, in our community, in our country, and become so upset about these things, and especially if we compare ourselves to others, and a spirit of discontent just settle upon us to where we complain. Can we find ourselves also in that position saying, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? Why haven't you come? Why haven't you taken care of this? Why haven't you dealt with that person or this situation or that or the other? Can we find ourselves in that position where we question God in an ungodly way, levying accusations against Him or even holding anger in our heart against God? I think we can. Sadly, if we've gone through this Christian walk long enough, we find that I'm the man, as David said. I am the man. I'm the one who's done that. The Lord's response to us as we think about these things, I believe, is the same thing as it was to the people of Malachi. I will come. I am going to come and I am going to do something about all these situations that concern you. But here's the thing that I think that we need to learn about Malachi. From Malachi. The Lord's priority is the preparation and the purification of a people. The Lord's priority in doing something is preparing a people and purifying a people. That's number one. Let's step back and think about this for a second. These Israelites back in Malachi's day that were complaining about God not dealing with the other nations and bringing judgment against them and all that stuff and all the evildoers and the Lord didn't do it right then. That was their expectation. That was their desire. In fact, they were complaining about God because He wasn't doing it. What if, what if God met their expectations. What if God submitted Himself to their expectations in that day? Would we have a Savior? Would the gospel have gone forth to all nations? What would your eternal destiny be? You see, it was the Lord's patience. It was the Lord's long-suffering when He was not meeting their expectations, but He was doing something bigger and greater because He wanted a purity of worship. He wanted the Gospel, this message, to be able to go all over the world through all generations. He was preparing to do all of this through sending His Son. They were whining and complaining, but my friends, that space of time meant salvation for us. It meant our salvation. 
In fact, it meant everybody's salvation because there's never been salvation apart from the work of Jesus Christ. That's not what they expected, but my friends, that's exactly what we all needed. Isn't it? What if God submitted himself to your expectations? What if what you thought God ought to do He submitted himself to you and did everything that you thought God should do. What would be the outcome? We certainly wouldn't have a lot of waiting, would we? We certainly seem to see a lot of things resolve much more quickly. But what would we be missing? What if God is doing something much bigger than we're thinking about much bigger than we understand. That he's got purposes and reasons for all of the things happening around us. And what does he reveal to us? This space, this space, while he is not coming back right now and dealing with all of these things the way that we perhaps think he should or would like him to, this space means salvation. This space means sanctification for His people. He is trying to draw in more people to be saved. This space. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter, doesn't he? What does he tell us in 2 Peter? He tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But He's going to be true to His promise. And my friends, the patience of God, the patience of God right now, lost friend, is providing you a chance to be saved. God is making this space for you to be saved right now. And God's people, we need to understand that. We need to appreciate the space that God is making for people to be saved. And don't we want to see the Lord prepare a people for Himself? Don't we want to see souls saved? That's part of the reason. But the other part of the reason is not just to prepare a people, but to purify a people. To purify a people. This is a space for sanctification. Peter also writes about this in 1 Peter. And listen to the language. It ties right back into Malachi. He says in verse, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see that picture? He is refining your faith so that it would be pleasing to God, so that your faith would be an offering that would glorify God. Do you see the clear connections Peter is making with exactly what Malachi was talking about? Just the Lord coming, and he's still doing a work right now. 
He's still doing, even today, in this moment, if God is, is stirring and dealing with your heart, if He's convicting you about something in your life, whether God is speaking to you about your need to be saved, or whether God is dealing with you as a Christian and He's convicting you about some attitudes in your heart, don't you realize that there is Christ right now and He's coming to this place and He is sitting here as a refiner and He is purifying and He is working. He's doing exactly what Malachi said He'd be doing. He's come to this place and He's dwelling with us because He wants to do this work. He's giving this space. He's giving this space. What else does Peter say? And this is so profound. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? The Lord, His priority hasn't changed, has it? You understand the priority from Malachi? Purify my people, and then I'm going to take out the trash. His priorities haven't changed. He said judgment must begin amongst God's people to purify my people. And if that's hard, if it is hard, and it is hard, it is hard. I'm not going to take anything away from it being hard. But if that's hard, what about that second part? When he does come to, a, to judge the evildoers, those who would reject the call of salvation, who would not find mercy under the blood of Christ, what will be their end? Peter tells us, if it's hard for those who are his people, my friend, it's a, it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment if you don't know Christ. Amen. It is a scary, scary thing because that promise is sure too. My friends, when that final judgment of the Lord against sin begins, opportunities for salvation are gone. While we wait in this moment... When trials come, we would do better instead of asking, what are you doing? To say, what are you seeking to do in me? What are you seeking to do in me through this? That's what Malachi is trying to teach his people. You know, we, we long... To have a service where the Lord passes by with His presence in a great and mighty way and we are filled and we are rejoicing and we are just singing and testifying the glories of God. But what if first the Lord seeks to come by with His Spirit and put us all on our faces, broken before Him, Amen. that He might lift us up? And make us sit in those heavenly places. You see, that would be consistent with the priorities that Malachi says. He wants us to offer pure offerings, but to do that, he has to purify a people. He has to come by and bring us to that place of brokenness. And I appreciate what, what Brother Donald was saying in his class this morning. I really enjoyed the, the talk about confession. The question was out there about, you know, well, how, how do I know if I need to confess something, you know? And, Talk about your conscience and things like that. But my friends, the Apostle Paul talked about keeping short accounts and dealing with his sin. And he made this comment. He goes, I'm not even aware of something that I've done wrong that I need to repent of right now. 
But that doesn't mean that I don't have something. The one who judges me and sees me is God. There is a very a lot of wisdom in the way that David prayed to the Lord where he says, search me and know me. Try me. Let me know if there's any evil way against me. Because David knew that the ultimate judge of, of where he was at with God and his walk was not his perception of what God's eyes saw. Amen. That's the ultimate one that needed to be satisfied. The foundation, my friends, that we have, and this is such a beautiful thing, is that our God doesn't change. As we see the consistency from Malachi to Matthew to Peter from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as we see these things weaving together, we see that we have a God who does not change. There is no change in His purpose. There is no change in His power. There are no changes in His promises. He will keep every single one and this is the beauty to me, is that God's commitments to me, they're not anchored in me. They're anchored in Him. They're tied up in Him and in His character. And when I falter, and when I fail, when I wilt, when I say and do things I shouldn't, when I don't say and do things I should, and that happens all the time, God's commitment to me is not tied to me. It is tied in His unchanging character. And the moment of trial and the time of waiting in your life is sponsored by the love of God. By the unchanging love of God. Because there is purpose. Our infinitely brilliant God has purposes in every moment. And the greatest thing that we could, any of us could do today in this place is to yield ourselves to His calling. To humble ourselves and surrender ourselves to this unchanging, perfect God. My friend, if you are lost, this unchanging God has rendered promises of saving all who would truly seek Him, but has also promised a day of judgment that is going to come and if the time of waiting and trial is hard for God's people my friends falling into the hands of an angry God a wrathful God because you are not his child but you are an enemy unsaved it's nothing you want the best thing you could do today is to surrender and submit to this God to humble yourselves to him and to seek the mercy that he's promised you and, and Christian friend Rather than resisting and pushing against all the things that God may be doing and pressing in in our lives, you know, and, and pushing against Him, if we would humble ourselves and remember that He is just as loving today as the day that He reached out and mercifully saved your soul, He has not changed a bit. His intentions for you are still good. And even though this is hard, He has told us what He's doing in it. He's told us. The purpose, the great glorious purpose, and it has not changed. There is a way that He wants to use you to render a pure offering to Him, and He just needs to launder you. He just needs to refine you. There is a purpose in this. And the sooner that we yield our ourselves to the hands of our God, the sooner we can find peace and strength to go through this time, however long it may be, in a way that would be pleasing to Him. He is our unchanging God. Our unchanging God. Brother Harold, let's have a song.
this morning. If God is dealing with you in some way, lost, saved, I urge you to call upon Him today. I urge you to take advantage of the opportunity because the promises aren't mine. The promises are His. And He will not change.